IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to IB Talk, the global podcast brought to you by Insurance Business. I'm Paul Lucas, the managing editor of Insurance Business, and today we're going to be talking on a subject so often swept under the carpet across the insurance industry, but one that requires real change. Uh, that topic is race. And one week after the diving festival, we're going to be looking at what the industry is doing right in opening up opportunities to people of all races and backgrounds, and where, sadly, it's still so often going wrong. Uh, to help tackle this subject, I have alongside me Ngazi Anaji, who, in addition to being a managing partner at ACO Insurance Consulting, is also president of the Greater Hartford Chapter, as well as sitting on the national board of the National African American Insurance Association. Uh, Ngazi, welcome to IB Talk. Thank you, Paul. Glad to be here with you. So before we get into the topic, Ngazi, uh, let's talk a little bit about your career, because I know that you studied a Master of Science degree in insurance and risk management. So is this something that, you know, you're one of those rare people that actually always wanted to be in the industry as opposed to falling into it? <laughs> yes, I guess you could call me a unicorn of, of sorts in that manner. Um, definitely started off my college career with a direct um, interest in, in insurance. And it was really my father who kind of put the, the seed, um, you know, planted the seed around, you know, the industry. And actually my degree is in actuarial science, my bachelor's. And so because I was good in math and, and being, you know, a um, the father of three daughters and just really wanting to kind of help um, establish careers for us where we had some level of independence, um, he introduced actuarial science as an opportunity for me to kind of hone my skills and, and go into an industry where I could, you know, grow professionally and financially. And so, you know, thanks to dad, um, you know, industry, the insurance industry became my love, um, have two degrees in it, have been in the industry for over 23 years. So I, I guess I, I guess you could say I'm here to stay now. <laughs> So, so no ill feeling for dad now. It's, no, no, it's no. <laughs> he did good. He did good. And you've worked for some some major firms along the way. Uh, you've you've spent time at the likes of uh, CNA and, and Willis Towers Watson. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what your roles were there? Most definitely. I mean, as I indicated, um, a degree in actuarial science, but that's not necessarily the discipline I went into when I started my insurance career. Um, you know, if you know anything about me, I do have somewhat of a personality. Um, I'm not typically shy. And so it was a great opportunity for me to go into underwriting. And so um, at CNA, um, actually, I started my career with the St. Paul companies. If 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 you're familiar with them, um, they've now been a, or since been acquired by travelers, but started off um, underwriting um in medical malpractice, at one point, uh, St. Paul pulled out of the marketplace and I decided, hey, I want to stay in insurance, but do something a little different and went on the brokerage side. So that's where uh, my experience at Willis um, and Marsh came into play. So I've, I've held a variety of different roles and disciplines that have allowed me to kind of see insurance from um, a variety of different perspectives, which I think was really important as I transitioned into my current um, role, if you will, as an independent insurance agent. Well, yeah, that sort of brings me neatly to, to, to my next question, because it was in, I think, 2017 that you established ACO. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and, and what made you sort of want to break out on your own? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think, you know, after 20 years of being in the industry, I mean, you kind of get into this grind, right, where you're doing, you know, you want to go professionally, you're moving up the chain, you're, again, transitioning from different companies, doing different roles. And so um, when I was at CNA, that's when I initially became involved in the National African American Insurance Association. And really at that time, it was just something to put on my resume. I was just looking, you know, middle management, just looking to kind of move up the chain and really wanted to highlight some, you know, opportunities to, to develop my leadership. And so that's when I started to kind of really evaluate um, or start to evaluate my role and, um, you know, legacy. What was I doing for professionals, other professionals like me in the industry? And so um, when I decided to open up my own agency, it was just really in a response for me doing kind of that look back and saying, hmm, Ngazi, what have you been doing for other Black professionals in the industry? Um, have you left a legacy in the industry that you could be proud of? And I, you know, that self-reflection, um, the answer was no, <laughs> I haven't done anything. And so it was really an opportunity for me to kind of say, what role and what position could I be the most impactful? And um, I really felt that being an independent agent allowed me not only to engage with other professionals um, and, and, you know, encourage uh, increased representation in the industry by um, engaging those individuals, but also engaging the community, right, and and educating the community about the tools of insurance and how to close the racial wealth gap. So those things were very, very, um, I became very passionate about and felt like that independence of being an agent allowed me the flexibility to do those things that I was passionate about. But also it create you know, kind of legacy from the standpoint of I own my own business, right? I'm an entrepreneur and I can pass this this book of business um, to my kids and ho- hopefully it will bring, you know, generational uh, stability for my family um, down the road. So definitely a pivoting point in my, my career. Yeah, and, and you've uh, had a lot of success as well. I, I know that you've expanded reach recently with uh, ACO Brokerage Services uh, as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So just to clarify, uh, the brokerage services is the independent agent arm, and then ACO Insurance Consulting is uh, the most recent venture, what I am proud to say I launched okay. roughly two months ago. And really that was you know, something I, again, have been thinking about for a while um, as I kind of looked to do more in the community. And I, you know, as my leadership role or my expansion in my roles within NIA started to expand, you know, one of the questions that I continuously got asked by leaders within different um, insurance organizations, um, insurance companies, brokerage firms is, you know, where's the diverse talent? Where is the talent? We can't find the talent. Now coming, you know, I graduated from Florida A&M University, which is a historically black college and university. You know, I kept scratching my head and it's like the talent's here, you know, whether it's at an HBCU, whether they're, you know, kind of experienced professionals in the industry. I just didn't feel like the industry was doing its job to attract that talent and, and to bring that talent into the fold. And so Aqua Insurance Consulting is a recruiting and retention firm focused on diverse, particularly black talent in the insurance industry. And not only do we refer, um, focus on recruiting, but also retention, because you know you can't increase representation in any industry if you don't couple recruiting and retention efforts, because your re- representation remains stagnant if the people aren't staying, it's like, you know, this vicious cycle of replacing people that leave because you're not focusing on how to keep them there. And so our firm works with companies about bringing talent into the industry, but also keeping them into the, in the industry for the long haul. Mm 
Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, you mentioned earlier as well about your, you know, your your role with the National African American Insurance Association. Tell me how how the two sort of sit together because it, it seems like a you know there's a natural correlation there. Most definitely. I mean, it's almost like <laughs> everything was made for each other in the sense that you know the mission and the focus. And, and um, the objectives of, of Naya align strategically and, and um, passionately with with what I what's important to me. And so the mission of Naya is to basically diversify the marketplace, diversify the industry, and we do that you know in a variety of different um, formats and methods and ways. Um, but primarily, that's the focus. And so supporting Black professionals in this industry is is kind of where. Um, we put our efforts. And so, and that's definitely what I'm passionate about, as I indicated earlier. So, you know, the, the opportunity to network with other black professionals in the industry to provide, you know, professional development, to look at opportunities where we, um, create business opportunities for these African-American professionals, whether they're agents, whether they're TPA owners, um, our opportunity to get engage the community through outreach, um, and also offering kind of membership and networking opportunities as well. It's kind of, you know, like I said, aligned strategically and, and personally with, with my two businesses that I currently own. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that then, the, the sort of the, the prejudices and, and the, the lack of opportunities, if you want, because, you know, I, I know that, that we run our own sort of women in insurance events, for example, and indeed uh, you've been involved with one of them. Um, and, I guess, you know, we often talk about the, the difficulties that, that women have uh, in terms of, you know, breaking through the proverbial glass ceiling. Uh, but I imagine that's something that's personified even further if, if you're a woman of color. I, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, being a double minority, as you would call it, um, it's, I think does bring additional challenges. Um, you know, you have those biases, those um, issues related to being a woman coupled with the biases and the issues related being a minority um, and having those racial differences. So I think, it, you know, f- for a black woman, um, you know, we we look at those, you know, both sides of the coin and we kind of, you know, try to find a place for ourselves. And oftentimes in, in organizations, we're, you know, typically last on the list, right? As a, when you look at kind of the opportunities and the growth and the development. And so, I think, you know, even in this day and age, as we we look for our place in this industry, um, we struggle. Right. And, and we look for ways to kind of network within ourselves to kind of leverage our community um, to bring awareness to kind of the um, uh, the lack of diversity that exists for us. So I, I do agree with you. It brings additional challenges when you have kind of both components at play. Yeah, I, I know I've certainly been at events and I, I've seen sort of uh, looked around the room and it's been full of, you know, the, the traditional white man, if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, There's been a, a, a lack of, of women and, and, and generally speaking, you know, the majority of women that I've met at, at those sort of events have generally worked on perhaps a, a marketing side or, or a PR side of the business. Um, and certainly... A, a lack of, of of people of color is that something that you feel is is still a huge problem that that, that the industry is really sort of short on 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 bringing in talent from from those backgrounds oh most definitely most definitely you know i think you know the awareness around the lack of diversity has increased um but i think the actionable steps the intentional progress that we need to, to make to change those dynamics has not and so that's where i think you know for me, 
standing up my firm, Aco Insurance Consulting, where those actions are intentional, they're deliberate. We're looking to make movement and show results become key. And so, you know, I, I, I really challenge the industry because at this point, you know, over the last few decades, we've kind of been singing this diversity song. And then granted, again, like I said, there's been an increase in awareness, but now we have to do, we have to do something very different. We have to start to take real, true, um, genuine steps to move the needle. And it's no longer about, you know, what you say, um, it's about what you do. And so I do think if, unless we do that, we'll be sitting in this, you know, having the same conversation five, 10, 15 years from now. And maybe on the same podcast, but um, definitely change um, some deliberate, intentional um, actions are needed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was obviously going to say to you that you know, there does seem to have been a push around diversity and inclusion in insurance in recent years. But, you know, is the industry really getting on track or, or is the industry sort of saying a lot of the right things, but not necessarily doing enough of the right things? I agree. I mean, I I definitely think they're saying the right things. I think even after George Floyd and with the onset of the Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, we saw a lot of statements. Now, granted, those statements from insurance companies um, and and insurance organizations, I mean, were valuable in the sense, I think, you know, a number of people have indicated that, you know, this is kind of the first time from a civil rights perspective, we've kind of seen um, companies put their reputations on the line and their brands on the line, um, denounced in kind of racial injustice. Um, but I think also those are just statements. Uh, I think part of the question or par- part of where we have to hold these organizations accountable is to ask them, okay, and what? And then what? What are you doing to support and, and bring forth these statements um, that you've put kind of out on social media and you've put on your websites? You know, what are the actual actions that you're taking to, to show us that this is true? And I have yet to, you know, you hear a lot, but I have yet to see, you know, kind of a real um, or a majority of these organizations take those actionable steps. And here we are months past um, Don, you know, the beginning of this movement. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. So let me ask you, because I I think, you know, we're going to perhaps talk about the idea of some unconscious bias if you mm-hmm. want and, and some perhaps discrimination that, that isn't necessarily intentional mm-hmm. um but then on the flip side there probably unfortunately is some intentional discrimination and mm-hmm. i think you know we are going back to the sort of the, the women in insurance issue we we heard a lot of um you know reports about the the various um sexist emails and so on that had been bandied around at, at lloyd's of london last year there was quite a big storm around that particular issue i, I just wondered if if you don't mind um have you encountered sort of any discrimination on a personal basis that, that you'd be comfortable sharing with us? I I have. I mean, you know, I, I think throughout my career, um, there's been, you know, pockets of discrimination, not overt in the sense that um, necessarily, um, you know, would call f- cause for, you know, major um, discord within an organization. But I do think individuals themselves have shown, you know, their, their biases, their um, you know, I have had managers who've who've made comments. I've had managers who've also kind of created an environment for me where you know um, I was treated one way versus my peer who was a white man was treated another way and got away with you know um, certain actions and 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 kind of not adhering to kind of certain um, goals and objectives where you know I was you know kind of um, 
put under the, the under the microscope, right, and really criticized for what I did and and understanding, you know, we were in the same role, but the responses were very different. And so for me, you know, not at that time, I really didn't understand what that was, right? I really, you know, I knew there was some you know, this this wasn't right. I knew that, you know, there was um, some level of discrimination, but I guess I didn't really appreciate how serious it was. And so for me, you know, over the years, as my awareness has grown, even as an individual, like, again, uh, that double minority, you know, I look back on those experiences as, wow, you know, maybe there was a certain level of ignorance on my part. But, you know, if I would have said something, if I would have spoke up, if I would have kind of, you know, questioned why this is, maybe, you know, that would have caused some ripple effect and and some um, level of change within that organization. But I do feel like sometimes, even as a minority, we experience these things and really don't appreciate them for what they are um, and bring them to the forefront. So I think that's kind of, you know, part of part of the issue. And I think I do think that through this recent movement, Black Lives Matter, there's a sense of empowerment in the minority community where we feel that, you know, we no longer can kind of let, allow these things to happen and stand by. And, and, you know, maybe we talk among ourselves, but we have to bring these things to the forefront. And so, you know, even though I've experienced discrimination, I think at the time I didn't really uh, appreciate them for what they were. Um, and in hindsight, that's kind of one of the things you regret, but you utilize as an opportunity to make a difference now and speak up now and and um, create an environment and a culture and an industry that helps support um, minorities on a go forward basis. Yeah, and, and you obviously, you know, you're like you said, you, you're heavily involved with, with trying to sort of in, enhance opportunities and, and to sort of boost recruitment uh, among minorities. But tell us a, a little bit about sort of the common mistakes that organizations might be making in terms of, I guess, not necessarily being open to, to, to people of different races. Maybe they're making those those kind of unconscious mistakes that, that, that we mentioned earlier or, um, you know, or, or in, in terms of the mistakes that they might be making when actually these these people from minority backgrounds are in employment you know what, what sort of issues are, are you seeing as as, as common and, and that you're encountering well you know it's interesting that you bring that up because i think the mistakes are kind of in in kind of in various different kind of components of of um what's out there if you will i think to your point or you know your first point about kind of the recruiting and the retention component um, I think there's a lot of um, mistakes around just the process, right? And and understanding it could be, you know, just as simple as even the recruiter having these unconscious biases that they're not aware of, right? When they go to interview with a candidate. Um, also kind of understanding that, you know, recruiters themselves are put under the wire and they have, you know, they're their um, objectives and kind of their goals and what they're measured on are p- getting people in the roles, not keeping them in the roles. And so we really need to have to change the dynamics or how um, success is measured. I think also, you know, if you start to look at kind of DNI or diversity um, and inclusion in general, I think, you know, going back to kind of the point we raised earlier, I think, you know, a lot of the statements, a lot of the the kind of the goals that the companies have put out there are not necessarily based on data. Like they're just kind of throwing things out into the wind, not really understanding kind of what the true need is, especially within their organizations. I think they're looking for potentially quick fixes. So again, not long-term solutions. And so that aren't sustainable. And so again, they keep having this conversation over and over again, because again, they're looking in the short term, not the long term. I also think that, you know, from the standpoint of kind of actionable items, things aren't being measured as they should be. And I think, you know, 
although companies have these lofty goals, um, I think they need to kind of look at, you know, what's tangible? What can I do today? What's, you know, possible versus kind of, again, lofty goals that are potentially impossible considering the current state that they're in. I also think that companies aren't really dealing with reality. Um, And what I mean by that is I think, you know, when we talk about inclusion, because oftentimes companies, you know, focus on diversity, but not inclusion, this inclusion conversation is about, you know, who are we trying to include? And the reality of that is that oftentimes when we talk about inclusion, we're not talking to the people that we're trying to include. And that reality conversation is, you know, what do you feel about this culture? What what are your, is your perception about this environment? Um, give us your kind of take on it. And I think companies are starting to, um, you know, ask those questions um, more, especially post BLM. Um, they're having these courageous conversations, having these kind of communal um, discussions with their black employees, um, which is a good start. But I think that's kind of where you start to identify um, the reality of what's going on within your culture, because I think, you know, perception from the standpoint of the individual you're trying to include is going to be important in making that change. And once you start to get kind of those perspectives in place, get the data in place, start to identify more tangible goals and action items, then that's when you can start to create strategies that can produce the results that you want. Of course, whenever we sort of talk about trying to to hire people from from a minority background, there's inevitably that sort of um, negative reaction to it, which is that mm-hmm. oh, this is this is positive discrimination. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure you've heard people say over the years, you know, why should I choose a, a black person for this role if I know a white person who's perfectly capable? Um, how do you respond to that? So, you know, I've, <laughs> that term positive discrimination is like an, an oxymoron, like how can you have positive discrimination? But, you know, I think, you know, no, no minority is looking for a handout. Right. Um, I think when you talk to any capable uh, individuals, particularly who has the skill sets and the experience, I mean, we, we want to do well, we want to exceed. And so we want to be viewed as competent for the role. And I, I don't think in any conversation, you know, you, that should be kind of taken out of the conversation. That individual, whoever you're trying to recruit, needs to be competent in, for the role. One, to set them up for success, right? To be success, successful in moving forward. But I do think there's an opportunity if if you have a level playing field as it relates to competency and qualifications um, that if the opportunity presents itself to hire someone of um, color or, or some level of, um, you know, a person that's unrepresented in your organization, that you do that um, and create the opportunity for diversity, not only as it relates to kind of skin color and culture, but diversity of thought, which I think is, you know, obviously coming, becoming more of a conversation on a go forward basis as well. So, you know, positive discrimination for me is not a thing. Like, I, I don't want to be a token. I don't want you to give me the job just because I'm back, but I want you to be say that, you know, I'm qualified, but almost, you know, not even say I'm qualified. Just the assumption is already there that I'm qualified. That's why you're even interviewing me for the job. And then start there and start to look at opportunities where if, again, the the playing field is leveled, then um, make a concerted effort to bring diversity within the organization with that as a baseline. Yeah. And and how do you feel about the idea of diversity quotas, so to speak? Because, you know, there's, again, there's, that's something that's perhaps a, a little bit controversial, the idea that, you know, X percentage of a, of a company's employees should be black or should be Asian, et cetera. 
you know, quotas, I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily like the word quotas either. I mean, I guess there's a few words I don't like, but <laughs> because, you know, I think, you know, again, it's going back to that whole perception of kind of, you know, just, just tokenism and, and whatnot. I do think companies need to have goals, right? I, I, especially in an industry that is based on data, right? The insurance industry is based on, we don't, we don't make any decisions in any part of our organization without having the data first. And so I do think you need to have the data and use that data to create goals for your organization and measure those goals um, and show your progress and demonstrate what you, what you're trying to achieve and how you're trying to achieve it. Um, so, you know, maybe, you know, some might call it one in the same, I, I, but I do think goals take on a very different um, feeling, right, within the organization, something positive that we're looking to obtain versus quotas um, has kind of the reverse reaction, right? Like we're forced to do this, that this is kind of, again, some level of, of token for the, the, the individuals involved. Um, so, you know, but I, I do also think that we can't be stuck on numbers as well, right? Um, they're just ways to measure our progress and get us to point A to point B. But there's a bigger picture here, and we have to keep that in mind as well. Yeah. So it's got to go, obviously, like you said, it's got to go beyond tokenism. Um, but what are the, the sort of the first steps, the actionable steps, if you want, that, that you would advise, whether it's brokers, agents, insurance companies at large, uh, to make to ensure that they're, you know, they're being genuinely inclusive? I think they just they first need to take a, a, a real assessment of, of what what their current organization is or isn't doing um, and, and have it be kind of based on reality. And, you know, again, looking at the goals and aspirations of the organization, looking at, you know, what the perceptions are within the organization from your employee base and your leadership um, around your your um the culture within the organization, the environment, um, but then also kind of, again, evaluate the individuals you're trying to include, the un- underrepresented um, employees, and what is their reality. And you kind of take all of that, you know, mix it all together and say, okay, this is this is what we're dealing with right now, because you have to do that first assessment. And again, all that's done based on some level of having data at play, right, and having it based on data. So I, my first advice would be to kind of do that assessment. Of, of your organization and do it kind of a, a, what is versus what isn't, and then start to identify where there are opportunities of, of improvement and where can we kind of focus and prioritize that, right? Maybe today your focus is on recruitment. Um, you know, you're not bringing enough diverse talent in, or maybe your priority is retaining. You have diverse talent, but not keeping them your turnover rate is is higher than you'd like for it to be. And so when you identify kind of where you need to focus your efforts, and then I think you could start determining what those actionable steps are, right? It might be as simple as we need to alter our onboarding process, you know, as far as kind of retaining employees, because once we get them in, we have no way to support them. We don't have an ERG. We don't connect them with the right realtors who will put them in communities that they feel comfortable, especially if they're relocating. We're not connecting them with trade organizations like NIA, right, when they come on board or, you know, have someone within the office, whether it's a field office or HQ, connect with these individuals when they come, especially if they're recent grads, right, college students. Um, they typically have no network when they get they start start jobs. So start it to really support them. So it could be as simple as that, or you know, overhauling your entire recruiting process and relooking at how you can, um, you know, 
eliminate those unconscious bias in the, the interview and, and recruiting pro- process as far as going down to how do we look at those jobs descriptions and those recs that we put out there? Are there some level of discrimination within our, our assessment process, right? Skills assessment process. Um, so I think there's, you know, that's when you, you know, after you do your assessment, after you kind of look, look at the reality of what is and what isn't and prioritize where you need to focus your, your efforts, then you can start identifying those actionable steps. Yeah, no, it's, it's great advice. And before we wrap up on Ghazi, um, I, want to, I wouldn't normally ask a, a lady about her personal fitness, but you are, in fact, a, a, a certified personal trainer. Um, and you, you also have you have ACO Fitness yes. uh, among your, your, your very wide umbrella of, of, of companies here. Um, tell us a little bit about that. So I've been doing fitness longer than I've been doing insurance, if you can believe it. <laughs> um, started off as a fitness instructor in college, right? As something kind of something to do, uh, extra cash, right? Um, I used to teach step class in college. And it stuck with me um, ever since um, to this day where, like, I, like you said, I own my own fitness company, personal training um, and group fitness. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a way for me to really level set, you know, in this industry, it, it's, you know, it, it sometimes can be stressful, right? Sometimes can be overwhelming. Um, but I, you know, I use fitness as kind of my balance, right? It's kind of the way I, I de-stress. I kind of, you know, bring it all into perspective, especially now, right? We're dealing with kind of post-COVID or current COVID situations um, where your personal life and your pro- professional life are kind of blending. And so fitness just gives me an opportunity to kind of, you know, you know, take everything off professionally and just focus on me health wise and, and encourage others to do the same. Um, Cause it's really important, especially as we deal with mental health, um, which is directly connected to physical health, um, making sure that you are kind of right body, um, mind and soul as you kind of enter into your professional world. So I think it will always stick with me. So another area of my life that will probably, you know, uh, I'll continue for another 20 years. If you will. <laughs> um, but, you know, I love it. I'm just as passionate about in, uh, fitness as I am insurance. So, um, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've got a few pounds to lose. So um, <laughs> g- g- give me a t- give me some tips and, and, and maybe tips for, for everybody who's sort of, you know, working from from home right now. Maybe the gyms aren't as accessible as they used to be. What What is your sort of, you know, your your standard tip that you would give to everybody? You know, it, I, th- I think it's a tip that most um mental health and physical health professionals would, you know, as you're sitting behind the computer, the desk, on the phone all day, I mean, strategically schedule some times to get away, right? Whether it's to take a walk outside, um, you know, do a couple of push-ups in the living room, just something to kind of, you know, walk away from kind of the, the grind of the professional life. Um, one thing I tell my clients all the, all the time, especially, you know, I love push-ups. I think it's one of the best, um, body weight or calisthenics there is. And so I always encourage my, my clients, you know, to do at least 50 pushups a day. Do You know, it doesn't always have to be in one sitting, but, you know, um, that helps to create strength across the body, whether it's upper body, uh, core strength. Um, so those are what, that's one of my favorite uh, exercises to do. So um, if you can't, you know, get outside to walk, just get, you know, drop to the floor, do 10 and you'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> So 
I, I was hoping you'd advise something that didn't involve movement, but uh, okay, I'll, 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 I'll take it. Uh, if, if someone wants to get some, some more fitness tips or, or insurance tips from you and Ghazi, uh, or, or reach out on any of the issues that we talked about earlier, how, how can they get in touch? Well, definitely. Um, I have a, a website for ACO um, Insurance Consulting, so uh, www.acoinsuranceconsulting.com. I'm on all the social media platforms for ACO Brokerage and ACO Insurance Consulting, as well as ACO Fitness. Um, so definitely uh, use that as an opportunity. And I'm very responsive because I'm always on. Um, so I look forward to hearing from everyone, especially on LinkedIn. So that's another area as well. Okay. Superb. And Ghazi, thank you very, very much for making the time today and, and for joining us. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Paul Lucas. Uh, this is IB Talk, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of IB Talk. Follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts for the latest episodes.